Hello, this is Gerard Robinson, and welcome to another The Learning Curve podcast, where I have an opportunity to talk about fun things, fun facts with fun people. And of course, none of this would be fun without my co-host, Kara Kandel. How are you? I'm well. I'm feeling super fun today, Gerard. Well, yeah. I'm feeling super fun in a very hot Charlottesville, Virginia. I don't know about the weather where you are, but it is hot. It's yeah, it's not too bad. I'm still up here in Michigan. Um, one of my kids got up on one water ski, which is pretty impressive. Mm. So that's been that's been fun. And there's um, yeah, we continue to have a lot of um, I say this facetiously, fun stuff going on in the news. <laughs> this is um, we've got a lot we've got a lot to talk about this week. But to your point. Um, we got a great guest coming up today too. So I think I think we're we both um, have met and 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 been at events with Dr. Sapphira Shuttlesworth. So I think that that's going to be a lot of fun to talk to her. What's what else is going on with you? Well, on the family side, we are trying to plan a, a staycation uh, since we can't travel the way that we used to. Millions of families are doing the same thing, so we're doing that on the personal front. And on the professional front, still moving along with the with the work we're doing here at the uh, uh, foundation. So that part is good. Good stuff. I hope that I hope that you uh, have a nice spa planned for that staycation. Figure that out. Now, of course, I would have had the best spa, the best person, but of course, we can't touch the way we used to in many places now. So right now, <laughs> it's it's going to be fully virtual. Massage. So I tell my wife, just just lay there right there now. You just, yeah, take a that's nap. the best we can do. Take yep. a nap. I'll keep the kids away for a little while. Yeah, that's about as good as it can get. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, in terms of all the professional stuff I do, I also get a chance to read really interesting uh, news articles. And the one that I'm reading, the title is, quote, Education Tax Credit Programs Extend Choice to Families Who Can't Afford Private Schools or to move to a Tony community, end of quote. Now, Carrie, you're more sophisticated uh, than I am. I had yeah. never heard of the term Tony community it's, it's until I read East this. It's an East Coast thing, you know? It's it. so, yeah. so yeah. yeah, we've got to give a shout out to the authors of this article, some of our favorite East Coasters, right? <laughs> it is two people we know well, uh, Charles Chippio and Jamie Gass at Pioneer Institute. And they took an opportunity to put in context what a lot of us who are in the movement are excited about uh, Espinoza and what the ruling means for families who are looking for uh, private school choice, particularly schools that are religious. But I think they did a really good job of putting in perspective that this was more than just a school decision about religion. It's really a decision about opportunity. And it's private schools that are going to open up the door to people who, frankly, often cannot afford to pay for it. We've had an opportunity to speak to um, Espinoza herself, and uh, she talked about the number of jobs that she's had to hold while putting her child into a private school in Montana. Well, there are a lot of Espinozas across the country, both men and women, married, divorced, single who are raising children who will tell you the tax credit program is making a dent, sometimes small, sometimes large, in the tuition bill. And, you know, they did a great job of talking about that by personalizing stories and by talking about how important it is, but also letting us know. And this is what something this is something that Pioneer did before a lot of other groups. They talked about the bigoted history of yeah. the Blaine Amendment and they hosted events. Uh, with it, with, you know, Mayor Flynn, also Ambassador Flynn and others. So, you know, 
you know, kudos to our friend at the Pioneer Institute for humanizing a story that in some ways has been politicized too much by people who just don't like public money going to private schools, even though this is private money and people making Absolutely. private decisions. Yeah, I couldn't agree. Such a such a great job. And you're right. They've been talking about this um, since long before it was cool, since long before mm-hmm. it was in vogue. So so cheers to to Jamie and Charlie. Wonderful job. I've got a related story this week uh, from The Wall Street Journal, and it's um, amid coronavirus, parents pod up to form at home schools. So this is about <laughs> choice in a different way, Gerard. And I got to tell you, I'm a I'm of several minds about this movement of creating homeschool pods. So first of all, let me say the word really bothers me. I don't know why. It feels very Star Trek-y. I kind of like Star Trek. I just sort of hate it in this context. It's really weird to me. But also, so this is the idea, and I'm sure you've heard about it, that, um, you know, talk about Tony, Tony uh, communities and Tony suburbs. We've got now a lot of parents who have moved, especially to wealthy Mm -hmm. suburbs, who are now realizing, as we've talked about before, that they're not getting what they thought they were going to get now that they're all holed up at home and either they can see what's going on at school because it's right there on the computer or because school's just not offering anything for a million and one reasons that I'm sure we'll be talking about more in coming weeks as we see more decisions around what school's going to look like. But so what what this article is describing is how certain parents are, you know, they're having to make choices. And, you know, listen, I'm not, this is no shame to the parents because we've got parents who are saying, my goodness, I, I can't be home because I've got to go to work. We've got parents who are saying, well, I have to, I can't be with the kids and monitoring their schooling because I have to work even if I'm at home. And then we've got parents who just don't know what to do. But the, the thing here is that if parents who can afford it, if they're not satisfied with what the school is offering or with distance education, they're either going to pay for supplemental online education, which is something that this article talks about, or some wealthier parents are finding ways to have agreements with other families. I'm safe. You're safe. We're safe. Let's hire our own personal teacher, a safe teacher to go and, and homeschool our kids. So To that, I say, amazing. That's great. Except let's think for a minute about I'm going to I need to give a shout out to my friend Tim Abram, who, you know, because we he and I have been talking about this a lot. And he's like, listen, this is great. This is what we all want parents to have flexibility, exercise choices. But to what extent do we think this is going to exacerbate inequalities that already exist? Because a lot of parents can't afford to hire their own personal teacher, or a lot of parents can't afford the $100 a month subscription to whatever online service they think is best, right? So there's number one, exacerbating inequalities. But number two, there's also this sense that I just have a sneaking suspicion, Gerard, that some, maybe even a lot of the parents in these Tony suburbs that are going to pod up aren't parents who would otherwise support school choice. (laughs) So I'm talking about, you know, folks who might uh, might otherwise say, oh, a voucher, that sounds bad. Where in reality, the tax credits that you're talking about or the education savings accounts that you've published Mm -hmm. a book about, right, Mm -hmm. are something that would help all parents be able to do this. Now, We see some states making progress here. South Carolina, you see Governor McMaster just signed into law this uh, these learn safely grants that are essentially going to be ESAs for kids that aren't getting what they need from schools. 
but oh, a lawsuit was just filed. So let's halt that because that might not be a good idea. Right. So this whole idea of potting up to me is something that if we're going to recognize that wealthier families are already doing this, we need to support efforts. And when I say we, actually, what I mean is those parents in the Tony suburban communities can do this, need to support efforts to ensure that parents who can't afford these same things still have the same options because there is money allocated to their children's education. It's just a matter of who's controlling it. And if the state's controlling it, there are too many parents that aren't going to get anything this fall. So let's let everyone pot up. And let's also just find a new word, because like I said, it's a little bit weird. But <laughs> so that's that's the story for this week. And I think that uh, I think that we're going to be talking a lot more about this um, as we roll into fall and and learn more about what reopening is going to look like. Uh-uh. I think one possible spillover in a good way from what we have in this moment are the number of families who on face value would not support charter schools, would not support um, privately funded vouchers, tax credits, publicly supported scholarships, whatever you want to choose. When you find yourself and your child is now the topic of conversation and you're either having to move or you're having to unbundle your life in ways you did not expect, all of a sudden you find yourself in the category of the other. All of a sudden you find yourself in need of options because the option that you had closed like other schools have closed because of COVID-19. And at the, at the foundation uh, where I work, the Advanced Studies and Culture Foundation, uh, the founder of our institute, uh, James Hunter, in his research, he talks about the importance of elites. And he said, if you look through recorded human history, you identify major changes, reformation, even the civil rights movement. And we're going to talk more about that with my tweet. Uh, It was people who were at the core, people who were influencers, who made things change. And so maybe some of the pod parents or those in the Tony community will be the ones becoming the loudest champion for options because it has now affected them. And maybe they'll see the others in ways they did not before. Boy, I hope you're right. I really hope you're right. And thank you, too, for also countering my pessimism with such optimism. I think it makes us a really good team. (laughs) I think it's a good way to go. So in coming up, Gerard, um, we are going to talk to Sapphira Shuttlesworth. And um, as you know, she's a great storyteller. She's got Mm -hmm. she's got a a lot to say. And I think that I think our listeners are really going to enjoy this one. So after this. Welcome back, listeners. This week, we are talking with Dr. Sapphira Shuttlesworth. She's a retired teacher and charter public school leader with the Sabbath in Educational Systems. And she and her siblings integrated the Pope Elementary School in Jackson, Tennessee. Sapphira earned a bachelor's degree in elementary education from Union University and a master's degree from the University of Cincinnati. She received an honorary doctorate degree from the Global Evangelical Christian College and Seminary in Montgomery, Alabama. Dr. Shuttlesworth is the widow of the late Birmingham, Alabama civil rights leader, the Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth. Dr. Shuttlesworth, thank you so much for being with us today and welcome to what I hear is your first podcast. 
Yes, it is my first podcast, and I am uh, just thrilled to be here. I am learning and teaching at the same time, and it doesn't get any better than that. (laughs) It really doesn't get any better than that. Well, we're very excited to learn from you today. Um, At Pioneer Institute, we've certainly had the pleasure of of hosting you many times as a speaker, as a panelist, and and I've heard you. I think we've actually been on a panel together as well, and I know you've been on a panel with Gerard, Um, so so I know (laughs) what, what good stuff. we've got in store for us. Let's start by letting our listeners know just a little bit about about you. And as I mentioned at the outset, in 1966, your siblings and you integrated the Pope Elementary School in Jackson, Tennessee. I am so curious to know um, what you know about why or how your parents decided um, that that they were going to go ahead and that you were going to do this. And could you tell us a little bit about about your family and about that experience in particular? Absolutely. You know, I I have a very forward thinking mother. Um, I think she lived vicariously through her children as uh, her father, who was a a huge advocate of education, passed away when she was 14. And so uh, she managed to get through high school and and take herself back to high school two years more to take a a beautician's course. But uh, my grandmother would not let her go to college, although she had a, a scholarship to go to Tuskegee Institute. My grandmother was afraid to have her daughter that far away from home. So my mother pushed us in the direction of education from as far back as I can remember. Not only did she push us, she prepared us for school. She was actually our, our kindergarten teacher, if you will. We went to school knowing everything that you know uh, in kindergarten back in the day. But what led us to uh, integration, I was uh, finishing the third grade, and I remember my year in the black school here in the community in third grade. I felt like I knew about as much as my teacher. Now, I loved my teacher, don't get me wrong, but I I was teacher's pet that year. And so I spent my year um, decorating the classroom, basically. Uh, At Christmas time, I did Christmas trees and and, uh, candy canes and Thanksgiving, it was uh, cornucopias and turkeys and on uh, just every month I was the teacher's helper. I decorated, you know, and by that time I'd already decided I was going to be a teacher. So I was just in seventh heaven, but I also recognized that I wasn't learning very much. And then what really uh, got my attention was I loved to read and we got the hand-me-down books from the white school as well as, you know, practically everything else in our school was hand-me-downs. And uh, there would be pages ripped out of the book. You get into a story and, you know, you get there and two, three pages in the next two pages are missing. And now you never know quite how the story, you know, pretty (laughs) devastating. I mean, there's a lot of devastation there, but that's, that's, that's bad. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And I got so sick of run, spot, run, see, spot, run. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And so, you know, I was carrying that inside me and then the building was in disrepair. We'd pass by that little building and it just looked like it needed some tender loving care. And then you pass by the white school and it was beautiful and the curtains were at the windows and the playground had equipment. Our building had no equipment whatsoever. And so, you know, and the the thing I think that really clinched it for me was the food. Now, anybody who knows me, 
people who wants to know me, just look my picture up and you can tell immediately that I have a love affair with food and have had it for quite some time. <laughs> and so I would get to the cafeteria and I couldn't quite recognize what was on my plate. And so I was apprehensive to eat at school. I ate a lot of bread and butter, um, traded my food for bread and butter because I knew what bread and butter was. Mm. And I remember the day that I got to the lunchroom and there was some meat on my plate that was covered in gravy. So I started to poke around in there and move some of the gravy out of the way. And I saw what looked like an eye looking back at me. (laughs) And so I was done. I was like, oh, my goodness. And uh, I truly, you know, I learned to make a meal of bread and butter from that point forward. So uh, come the end of the school year, summertime, we're out playing, and my mother gets a letter in the mailbox from the federal government. She called the three of us in who were school age, and that would have been me who was going into fourth grade by then. My sister Kathy, I I may she rest in peace, was going into the seventh grade, and my brother Bobby was entering first grade. So uh, she sat us down uh, uh, at her knees and read this letter to us and explained to us what it meant. And she said, she ended with, so next year you have a choice. And then she did the most incredible thing. And that was she sent us away to make the decision. And that made all of the difference in the world. She allowed us to make the decision. We didn't integrate because our parents told us to. We integrated because we told them we wanted to. So I say it's my first experience with school choice. We ran out of the house to play. And I say we congregated at the southwest corner of the house. We deliberated for about three minutes and ran right back in and told my mother, we were going to school with the white children. <laughs> and so, we so it so was excited. a unanimous decision. Huh? It was a unanimous decision. We went back in and said, hey, we want to go to the white school. And so the next few weeks, my mother went to register us. And oh, boy, the fun started. Um, she was met with uh, jeers and, and the N-word and and discouragement of all kinds, and uh, even the office staff, the the principal and all, they told her, you know, others have tried and it hasn't worked. You might as well just take your children on back to the, the black school because they won't find any success here. And my mother didn't hear any of that. She said, I'm here to enroll my children and I'll be standing right here until you give me the paperwork. And so she took the paperwork and filled it out and um, and got us enrolled. They assured her on the first day of school and any days thereafter that we were not special, that they weren't going to take care of us in any particular way, that we were just, you know, I, I say, um, lambs led to the slaughter. That's kind of what it was like. And yet we, on the inside of our little hearts, we knew we were doing the right thing for us. Somehow we just knew. And so we were able to stay. As we said, others had tried and um, they didn't, weren't able to last, but we did. So the first year, I had no friends at uh, playtime. I would take a book out on the playground and I'd read, which was a good thing because I became a very good reader. 
And so, and I loved mathematics at the time. And so I could multiply faster than anybody in the classroom. And after a while, they started to figure out that I was smart. (laughs) And so because you're, because see, when you're smart now, what's the reason for not making that person your friend? So year two, a little girl named Angela decided she had had enough and she was going to be my friend. We just played with each other on the playground. By year three, three more boys who were brothers joined us and we were, one of them was in my class. We were sixth graders at the time. In the spring of that year, I think it was probably the hardest uh, thing that I had to endure. The thing that I remember most is when uh, Dr. King was assassinated. We went to school the day after, and uh, they made an announcement at some point um, that, you know, he had been assassinated. And there were uh, this, uh, the other black student, he and I happened to sit beside one another, not that we wanted to, but that's where they put us. And so um, the boys in the back of the room, I will never forget, uh, and I'm actually Facebook friends with some of those boys now, but they, the, the classroom came undone. We had a teacher who was a new teacher that year, new to teaching. And so she cried a lot. And so she cried that day because the boys were just having a field day. They were cheering and high-fiving and jumping from seat to seat, uh, celebrating being had been assassinated. And so the other young man who uh, was there, the other black boy, his name is Terry Gunn. I've not seen him since those days, but uh, we just stared at each other. And I was broken, but I couldn't cry because I couldn't let them know that it mattered that much to me. Now, mind you, I lived about 90 miles from from where Dr. King was assassinated. He was here in Tennessee and Memphis. I lived in Jackson. It's 88 miles from Jackson to Memphis. So it felt like it happened in my backyard, but I couldn't show any emotion that day because, you know, because it mattered too much. It it hurt too much. It mattered too much. And uh, that's how I remember my integration. We never actually had to fight physically. But we endured a lot of name calling and bullying and threats and jeers and jokes. There was a lot of that. But somehow it just didn't matter as much as getting what we thought was a better education. And as you said, a decision that you and your siblings made yourselves, which probably also carried some weight, I imagine, as you um as you had said at the outset that it's what you had wanted to do. So uh, a sense it's what of, we of thought we wanted. Yeah. I, I, I think about that now as to whether or not I do it again and what it all yeah. meant knowing then what I know now, I, you know, I'll, I'll have something to wonder about in my retirement years. I bet. But uh, yeah. by year four, was it, I think in the six, I believe it was, they forced integration in the area. And by that time, we had become accepted by the white children that we were in class with. And so um, we ended up being mediators, actually. Hmm. And so it's amazing. So you paved the way. Yeah, you you paved the way for those that came. And a lot of people, uh, thank you for that, I think. Um, So you you mentioned, of course, Dr. King and this this seminal moment, this memory from from your childhood. And then but you grow up and you go on um, to marry Reverend Shuttlesworth, 
um, uh, a very important civil rights leader in his own right. And he, uh, along with Reverend Abernathy, Dr. King, and the leadership of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC, were famous Baptist ministers committed to nonviolent protest. Now, Birmingham, Alabama, uh, many see that as the turning point of MLK's career and the success of the civil rights movement. Your husband yeah. played a really important role in Birmingham prior to 1963, and he took the steps that ultimately brought the SCLC and Dr. King there. Can you talk a little bit about your husband's work and your work with your husband and and, and what the what that all meant to you, especially as that little girl who was sitting in the classroom remembering those jeers from your childhood? Absolutely. You know, at the time, I had no thought of being married to Fred Shuttlesworth or anyone like Fred Shuttlesworth. I didn't give much thought to being married at all at that time. You know, I wanted to be a teacher that I knew. And and so I was preparing for my future. Um, but as as time went on, it's one of the things that I say brought Fred Shuttlesworth and me together. It was uh, that was part of the understanding. I understood why he had done the things he'd done and why he needed to continue to fight for equality and justice because I integrated schools. He tried to integrate to integrate the schools the year I was born, 1957. He tried and was beaten in the streets for his efforts. But in 1966, I delivered on what he tried you know, 11 years earlier. And so there were some things that we had in common that we didn't even have to talk about. Um, SCLC was also born in 1957. And uh, Fred Shuttlesworth was one of the founders and uh, one of the officers for SCLC. And so he and Martin King uh, and Ralph Abernathy and, and you know, all the others, they, they became uh, very close friends. They were strategic in, in their leadership and, and they capitalized on what each of them was great at. And so um, in 1953, Fred had um, moved back to Birmingham. He uh, moved away to Mobile uh, for a few years after he and Ruby, his first wife, were married. And uh, 53 uh, brought him back to uh, the pastorate at Bethel Baptist Church in uh, Collegeville, a small community in uh, Birmingham. And um, he started by challenging the local authorities uh, to hire black police officers just to patrol the black community. And the other thing he did was he started registering people to vote. He did that from his pulpit. He called people out on Sunday and asked, have, have you registered to vote? And they'd say, no, Reverend. He said, well, be ready at eight o'clock tomorrow morning. I'm coming to get you and we're going to go and register to vote. <laughs> so in order to be in his church, you just had to play along, you know, because he was that kind of leader. And so um, he got himself involved in the local politics. Now, the problem in Birmingham was that there were actual segregation laws on the books. And, you know, for anybody who's interested in listening to this, you know, in times, uh, days to come, I, I ask you to look those up. You'd be surprised at what's there. I mean, just so, just asinine things like uh, blacks and whites may at no time play a game of checkers or baseball or any of that. Um, I couldn't visit you at your home to have, you know, a peanut butter sandwich and you couldn't visit me at my home to have a cake of salmon, you know, and <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, just amazing, amazingly stupid laws, not just word of mouth. And people took the time to put on paper and to enforce. And then there was Bull Connor and so many like Bull Connor and George Wallace who lived for segregation, segregation now, segregation forever. And they had a lot of support throughout the South. So Fred Shuttlesworth, he said somewhere in his early 20s, he felt the Lord pulling him in the direction that he needed to do something to to make life better for people like him in the South. Uh, growing up, he said he wanted to be either a doctor or a minister. And so the minister won out and he got himself uh, educated in his 20s. And by the time he was in his late 20s, he started to feel this pull toward um, activism, getting involved in changing the laws that he saw around him. Um, he said that uh, God made mankind in his own image, that if God made mankind in his own image, why did blacks have no rights that whites had to acknowledge? And so for him, that became, I think, the, the, the religious foundation on which he stood to change things. If indeed we're all made in the image of God, then we all need to share the same freedoms. And so he said that um, the throne of God rests on two pillars, and that's justice and righteousness. And um, from the book of Amos, chapter 5, it says, until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. That's how long he felt like he needed to work until he saw that outcome. Uh, Fred's faith is what set him apart. I talked about, you know, the a little bit about the, the strengths of uh, the founders of SCLC and the founders of the movement. Fred's hard-headed faith is what we call it, mm -hmm. is what set him apart. And um, he was an in-your-face kind of uh, challenging uh, guy. He was very different in in his approach than Dr. King. Um, Dr. King was the uh, leader an un, unchallenged leader and every movement needs a leader and they were all happy to follow his lead. But at the same time, um, Fred was known to challenge. He was known to challenge Dr. King. He talked about the first time they met was shortly after Dr. King had finished his PhD. Uh, a group had brought him from Boston down to Montgomery to um, to have, uh, I think it was some convention or something that they brought him in for uh, as the guest speaker. And so the first thing he did when he got to Alabama was he said, to, so he said, I need to go to Birmingham. I need somebody to drive me up to Birmingham, which is like 90 miles away, uh, to meet this Fred Shuttlesworth because Dr. King had heard about the work that Fred was doing in Birmingham. And so... He arrived and uh, Fred said that they met for about 10 minutes. And uh, what what came of that meeting was an agreement and an understanding that things had to change and that they would work together to bring about that change. 
So uh, Fred was a few years older than Martin, I think like five years difference in their age. And um, the, they got busy and started to work, you know, to create, uh, to bring about that change. And boy, did they bring about And boy, change. did they, absolutely. Yeah. Although some of the same questions we're still wrestling with today. Oh, uh, absolutely. Unfortunately. Hi, Dr. Shuttlesworth. This is Gerard. Good to hear your voice. Yes, Gerard. Good to hear you also. You stressed a couple of times your profession and your role as a teacher. Talk to us more about your decision to become an educator and you retired recently. Tell our listeners about that journey. My goodness, let me see now. Um, from the time, like I said, I was eight years old. Um, I loved, let me start. I loved school all the way through and still love learning. I am a lifelong learner. I am committed to it. And um, I learned early on, I learned that about myself. And so by the time I was eight years old, I was uh uh, inquisitive and uh, pretty knowledgeable at the time. And, and I just understood what it meant to be a teacher. I wanted that leadership uh, position for myself. I wanted to change as I grew older, I wanted to change the world. And the way I was going to do that was through education. And I'm still there every day of my life. My, my goal now, I set a goal some years ago that I would teach somebody something every day of my life, including the day I die. That's my goal. And so, um, I started out, you know, just being a good student. I think that good uh, good students become good teachers. I think it's it's interchangeable. You need to be able to learn well, and you need to be able to teach well. And I don't think you can do one without the other. And so I set out to be, you know, one of the best students in my class. And so I worked hard and got myself through. Um, I don't know where this is going to end up, but I will say that uh, I got sidetracked along the way because, you know, life gets hard. Uh, all of us have our struggles. And for me, I was struggling because my father was one of the first what I would call deadbeat dads in that um, he walked away when my mother was six months pregnant with me, though we didn't have the relationship that we should have and could have and ought to have and all of that. I love my father for what he did uh, give. So I say that to say I was struggling with that absence of my father. And I will also say that my, my mother remarried when I was four and I had a wonderful stepfather who was doing a lot of things all of his life life for us. And yet that connection wasn't what it would have been with my biological father. As a result of that, I got pregnant at age 14 and had my only child out of wedlock. And it's part of my story. It's part of what I like to share from time to time, especially the older I get, because I want to motivate young women to help them to understand that you know, sometimes you look at somebody like me and you see all of the things that they say I've accomplished, whether I have or not, and you think that I've had an easy road. No, I didn't have an easy road. I Mine was, you know, peppered like everybody else's, you know, with this or that or the other. And so I had this child at age 14. And when that happened, I had a lot of people who were counting me out saying, oh, well, she's not going to do this. And she goes, yeah, she wanted to be a teacher, but she's probably not going to. Well, all of that was just, you know, fodder for me to uh, to accomplish the things that I really wanted to accomplish in life. So I hunkered down 
and I got uh, myself through high school and the uh, summer between junior and senior year, I started college. And um, uh, when, when I graduated high school, it was May 28th and I started college on June 6th, like a week later. I, it took me two years and eight months to get a BS degree. And when I got pregnant, I, they put me out of school. I found out years later that in 1972, the Supreme Court actually passed a law that you couldn't put a young lady out of school just for pregnancy. But I didn't know that. We didn't know that at the time. And so I ended up having to sit out uh, the second half of my uh, year, that year, 1972. And so I had to repeat the grade, although I had great, wonderful grades for the first half of the year. And looking back on it, they could very well have sent home assignments, and I would not have had to repeat that year. Uh, but my daughter was born on the last day of school that year, so I could have gone the whole, ter whole term or, you know, made up the work. I did my undergrad degree in two years and eight months, and I ended up graduating a year and a half before the people I started college with and a half year before the people that I would have been with. <laughs> So at that point, I knew that I was on the right track and that I would be, I had already made up for, you know, the misstep that I had uh, suffered along the way. So I was on my way and uh, at age 21, I moved to Cincinnati, got married and moved to Cincinnati and, uh, and got my first teaching job a couple of years later. I didn't know how long I could last in education. I just knew I wanted to teach. And uh, there were times when I thought, there is no way I can do this for 30 years. Well, I think I did it for 33 or four. I don't know. <laughs> and I'm thinking about going back, believe it or not. So, yes, uh, I have had in my heart uh, since I was a very young child that I, uh, I am an educator. And that's what I do. That's what I've been doing. Thank you so much for sharing your personal story about pregnancy as a teenager. There are millions of uh, young ladies and young men involved in the act who will find this encouraging because so many people, as you know personally, write you off. Ah, there's no hope for you. And now you're the doctor. So we know that's uh, not the case. So thank you so much for that message. Absolutely. Here's, here's a follow up. Your husband and Dr. King are two well-known figures in the American civil rights movement. We often know that these great men could not have done this without great women. Talk to us about the role of women in the civil rights movement and maybe some things both young and mature audience should know that we often don't hear. Hmm. That's an interesting question. Uh, the role of women in the civil rights movement. Uh, a few years ago, I had the uh, wonderful uh, opportunity to spend a weekend with some of those women. Um, as you know, I am uh, the second Mrs. Shuttlesworth. Uh, his, uh, Fred's wife, Ruby, passed away, I believe it was in 1971, and he and I didn't meet until probably 15 years after that. So, I'm not a homewrecker, but I am the second Mrs. Shuttlesworth. And I will tell you that uh, back then, there was, you know, this male chauvinistic animal that lived you know, among the leaders uh, um, of the movement. And so they had specific roles that the women played. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with raising the children. 
um, and, you know, doing the prep work for the marches and those kinds of things. You know, I say a lot that um, I don't know how any of the movement's children really knew their fathers because they were gone so much. You know, this meeting and that meeting and this march and that gathering and this session and on and on it went. The children spent a lot of time with their mothers. And so that was a, a real part of what happened, you know, in the 60s and uh, 50s and 60s and like that. Uh, but moving forward, you know, I, and I will say, I want to add, though, the founding members of Southern Christian Leadership Conference in 1957, there were a couple of women there. But at the same time, women were forging their way into places that men weren't quite used to having them because some of us were hard-headed too. I mean, Fannie Lou Hamer, who could, who could hold her down? Who could hold her back, you know? Right. <laughs> and so there were women who were going to get their foot in there, you know, and even what happened with Rosa Parks, you know, that's a incredibly uh, interesting story from the inside also, you know, and people get caught up in, well, she was tired. She was just tired. No, that wasn't the kind of tired that she was. It wasn't about, my feet hurt or, or I, I walked 10, you know, miles to get to this bus. And I'm, no, that wasn't the kind of tired. It was tired of having to give up my seat because of the color of my skin, you see. And all of that was orchestrated down to the letter. And I'm happy to say that Fred Shuttlesworth was at the table when, when that was uh, uh, decided, you know, when all of those details were put in place. Now, moving forward, fast forward a bit. Being married to a civil rights icon. Um, inside of our home and our marriage, and I've done some writing. I put my hands on my book just a few minutes before we place this call because I need to reconnect with it. I've written the book about our relationship and, and what it meant to be married to a civil rights icon. And I have not published yet because I feel like a surrogate mother when it comes to that. I, I am having a hard time handing the baby off. <laughs> so, so hopefully this is my year to go back and polish that and, and actually put it out there because it takes an extraordinary kind of support when you're walking alongside um, a leader. Um, I did not watch the Sopranos show back in the day, but one day I came through the room and it happened to be on the television. And I was in there just long enough to hear one of the main characters say, when you are with a powerful man, you better damn well treat him like he's powerful. And I thought, whoa, <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote it down. I'm like, oh, Fred and I were dating at the time. And I thought, you know, I probably do need to give a little thought to that. You know, what can I anticipate in the future and what do I need to be doing now? And what is he seeing already? And what part of that was good for him and what part was not good. So I started asking questions. And so, you know, one of the things I think when you're with a, a leader, you need to pay close attention as to what it is that fuels their dream. You know, how do they dream and, and what's the dream about and where do you fit into that? And like I said earlier, there was some conversations that we didn't even have to have because of the life that I had lived before I even met Fred Shuttlesworth. 
And so I looked at, you know, those things that might be missing in his life. And uh, it, it, it got to be, you know, to the point that I could finish his sentences in, in some cases. We got to the point where um, he did a lot of writing throughout the years. And um, in his latter years, as he and I partnered up, he would uh, be writing a sermon or, you know, a speech or something, and he'd have me typing it. He would write things out longhand because that's what he was accustomed to doing, and he'd hand it to me, and I'd type it uh, so that it'd be easier for him to read and deliver and so that we'd have a copy of it, you know. Um, and so sometimes, you know, he would write and he'd hand me something and I'd read through and I'd stop typing and he'd say, what, is there something you, are you stuck? Did you, I said, no, I said, you know, when you said, uh, that blah, 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 I said, what if you changed it to blah, 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 do you think it would be better that way? And he'd think about it. We did that for a while. And then by the time he actually retired, there was a retirement booklet. Uh, he traveled to all of the churches that he had pastored throughout the years. And um, there was a, a, a culminating event and it came with a booklet and he needed to write um, a thank you letter, if you will, or, you know, words from him, uh, one page long. And they told him they needed it by X date and he, he wasn't writing and he wasn't writing and he hadn't written. And I said, honey, um, you know, you've got that deadline. You need to write this thing. And he goes, oh, you know, I just, I just really don't feel like it. I, I've lived when you live a life like I have, he said, where do you start writing? I, I don't know how to, I said, well, honey, all you have to do is I said, first you want to, you know, acknowledge God because he is your power source. And then you want to thank your mother because she kicked your behind. You know? <laughs> and, and, and so he looked at me and he says, uh, you know, you could write it. I'm going to me write it. <laughs> and so sure enough, I thought, let me go write this. And I went to the computer. I wrote up the whole thing and took it to him with a red pen. And I said, okay, now make it sound like Fred Shuttlesworth. Make it be you. And there was very, very few changes that I had to make. But, you know, you have to set out. First, you have to want to. You, got, you have to want to be in relationship and be uh, that help meet to somebody powerful. See, it's easier to be with somebody who's just getting up, going to his nine to five every day and he comes home and, you know, he's got his uh, fried chicken and macaroni and cheese on the table and he's happy and, you know. You raise your kids and you call it a career at some point. That's easier. But when you're dealing with somebody whose phone is ringing all hours of the day and night and they need support and they need information and they need, you know, they need, they need, they need. First, you got to be able and willing to share your significant other with the world. He told me before we ever got married that I had to be willing to share him with the world because he said, I don't belong to you. I don't belong to my family. I don't belong to this city. I am a citizen of the world, and you have to be okay with that. And I was. Yeah. Honesty, honesty in marriage. I mean, is there a part to figure? I think um, I'm going to take so much away from talking to you today. I'm also going to run out and tell my kids that they need to take thank God and thank their mother when they <laughs> absolutely, just, absolutely. There we go. And and you know, um, 
listening to you and, and talk about all of these great leaders you have known throughout your life and supported throughout your life. And it's also so clear that you are indeed a very important leader in your own right, too. And it has just been um, our privilege to have this conversation with you today. Dr. Shuttlesworth, thank you so much for spending time with us. Absolutely. Thank you. The tweet of the week is from CNN, July 18th. U.S. Representative John Lewis has died, a son of sharecroppers and a civil rights leader. He served 17 terms as a congressman from Georgia. He was 80 years old. He was also a graduate of Fisk University, one of our historical black colleges and universities, in 1967. And all of us know a great deal about him now, primarily over the last two years because of his very uh, forceful way in which he made sure that civil rights wasn't something that we just talked about in February during Black History Month, but it was something that all people benefited from. I had an opportunity to see John Lewis in person when he was the keynote speaker uh, in June at uh, the Museum of Virginia. And we were going to dedicate uh, or did dedicate a, uh, a new boulevard to Arthur Ashe. And so he provided a really good historical overview of the civil rights movement. He, of course, at the end talked about the role that Arthur Ashe played in it. But it was great for my uh, two younger daughters to get a chance to hear him in person. But what moved me most was seeing my father-in-law, uh, who recently passed. He was 86 years old. He was a friend and a coach of Arthur Ashe. But to see him cry, he was a very mm. proud man, but he cried and we talked to him afterwards. He said everything he said about segregation and about what it was like to feel belittled. He said, I experienced that. And so John Lewis spoke to a man of his time, six years difference in age. Yeah, but not in lived experience. And so for my granddaughters or his granddaughters, my daughters to see him cry, my wife to see him cry, really put in perspective what John Lewis meant to the country. And in a very, you know, in a way that we unfortunately politicize everything and make things partisan, he wasn't a Democrat. He wasn't just a civil rights leader. He was a human being advancing a, a, a human rights agenda. And he's someone that all of us should be proud of. And I just want to share that as a good tweet of the week. Yeah, it's an amazing tweet of the week. And and certainly such a great man and such an example, such an example for this country in that he remained it not only a phenomenal leader, but just committed to, as you said, human rights and civil rights for the for the entirety of his career. It's as, as though he, he never wavered. And um, it's, um, it, it's a great loss. But what a beautiful remembrance. That, that you've given. Thank you so much. Um, so Gerard, next week, you know, we just, we keep plugging along with all these amazing guests. We're going to be talking to Deva Sobel, former New York Times science reporter and the author of Longitude, Galileo's Daughter and Letters to Father. So I feel like we need to do some homework, Gerard, before we talk to this next guest, or at least I do. I don't know, but that's what I'll be doing going into this weekend. And um, are you starting your staycation real soon? Hopefully in two weeks. 
Oh, okay. All right. Yep. So, so we got a little time. All and right. I will well, still people do pod the show. up, you'll staycation. <laughs> and I'll still do the show from staycation. So I will be okay. on board. But you might like have an eye mask on or something because you'll be at the spa. Exactly. Okay. All right. All right. Fantastic. With, Just with, some imagery with, for us. With, uh, with mango uh, puree on my nose. Awesome. I'll, I'll be looking for that recipe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, my friend. Until next week. Take care. Good. All right. Take care. Bye.